0: A couple of weeks ago, I was flying down to Juarez for our, our annual board meeting, and I found myself in a van crossing last Wednesday night, crossing into Mexico, in a van that many of you helped to purchase, so thank you for that. Um, and I had a very interesting conversation with a young man. The young man is a senior in high school. His name is Levi, and he's the grandson of the founder. And he's going to school right now in, in El Paso, and we're talking, and I, I said, So tell me, what is your take? What is your take? on this caravan. And he said, my take is they're already here. And that was true on a number of levels. If you know the history behind Juarez, there's a a reason why there's a million and a half people living there. And that's because for years and years and years, people have been going north to see if they can find work in the factories or see if they can get a chance to immigrate into the United States. So on that level, it was true, but it was true on another level. It was true in the fact that there were people physically there that weren't there you know even weeks ago um, many of you have crossed the downtown bridge there in el paso going into juarez and it's very clear who owns what you know there's a crossing station on the u.s side there's a crossing, crossing station on the mexican side and then right in the middle of that bridge there's two flags united states flag and a mexican flag and he said for the last several weeks right up to that mexican flag it's been lined with people lined with people and while some of the motives of some of the people may be suspect, most, in the pe- most of the people, most of the people in that line, they're there because they don't know where else to go. And if you go around the globe, there are millions of people in a similar situation where they don't have food and they don't have jobs and they don't have a place to live and they don't know where to turn. And millions and millions, tens of millions of people in that situation will find themselves being trafficked. And that's the series that we've been in for the last three weeks. For the last three weeks, we have been pressing into this dark and heart-wrenching reality. And I encourage you to take out your notes as we dive into this, the last week of this series. And I encourage you to write this down. Trafficking is real. Trafficking is real. And as we've looked at the, the state, or if we looked at, yeah, at the stats, I should say, if we looked at the stats, and as we've heard the stories of people who've been exploited for profit, girls and boys, we were confronted with the reality that this isn't just happening in places like Mexico. It's here. It's here. Trafficking is real. It's happening all around us. And here's that other blank on that first line trafficking is wrong can i get an amen to that it it, and i'm glad that was with some punch because it is it is wrong trafficking is wrong throughout this series we've been pointing you to resources most of them that we've been pointing you to were developed either by people who were in the life and got out or people who are on the front lines right now and it has been hard to press into those resources this last week, I sent you a link um, from a person who wrote one of the books we have recommended, a book called Make It Zero, and she's giving a TED Talk. And when she got to the part of that TED Talk where she was describing how men can go online and they can order girls like you order pizza, I, mean, I, I wanted to stop that TED Talk right there. That is just too real. That is just too wrong. And one of the um, books that I um, quoted from at the start of this series described a story of a, a girl who ran away and she was being trafficked by the time she was 13. And as they were telling her story, they told about how her pimp had, been, had given her these non-fitting shoes, six-inch stilettos, and how she was able to, to find some people that were coming around her and helping her get out of the life. And for the first time in her life, she was able to pick out her own shoes And when she chose shoes on her own, shoes that actually fit, they were purple and pink sneakers. They were kids' shoes. And those are the shoes she should have had all along. And I wanted to close the book right there because how can you continue to press into this when it's that ugly and that's dark? And then just down the hall last Wednesday, We had that great presentation um, and they showed a video, a video clip that was produced actually I think by some teenagers. And in this video, they had a scene where this really young teenager is walking up to the motel room and waiting for her in that motel room is a middle-aged guy. And as she gets to that door, starts to knock. I I didn't want to watch that. I wanted to look away. One of the things that Becca was telling me about, is she said there's some sites where as they're introducing you to this dark world and they're trying to point out the injustice of all this, they have a quick exit button so that when you're watching these things, you can hit that quick exit button and just get out. Let me tell you something that's not going to happen with this church. We are not going to hit the quick exit button on issues like this. Can I get an amen? This is too real. This is too wrong. We can't hit the quick exit button, which is why we're going to close the way we are going to close here in this service. But before we get to the closing, let's get to the substance here. Two weeks ago, Caitlin talked about the cost of complacency. If those who can do something do nothing, then false narratives will continue to shape beliefs and behaviors and cultural norms won't be challenged. And laws won't get changed and demand will continue to rise and more and more kids will be drawn in and more and more people will be exploited and abused. And none of this escapes God's sight. The text that we've used as the framework for this series is a book called the book of Amos. It was a message, it was a prophecy that was given 2,500 years ago to a shepherd named Amos who was entrusted with the task of bringing a divine message to a complacent people. And this was a people that he gave this prophecy to that came from God, a people who had very little attentiveness to the injustice that was happening all around them. They were a people, we saw that week, whose lives mirror our own in very convicting ways. So in this final week of the series, we're going to turn our attention now to the final chapter of Amos. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open with me to Amos chapter 9, verse 1. And I want to let you know as we're turning there, if you don't have a Bible, we'd love for you to go home with one today. Each and every week, we keep a stack there at that table with the black mailbox. We encourage you to grab one of those on your way home. Here we go. Final chapter of Amos, Amos chapter 9. We'll start with verse 1. Amos in the prophecy says, I saw the Lord. Standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. And not one of them shall flee away, not one shall escape. How does God feel about injustice? It feels like this. It feels like this. Later we're going to be singing. God is good. He's always kind. With the cross, he proved he's on our side. Is that true? Yes. Is it also true that God is a God of justice? Yes. And he warned these people over and over and over and over and over and over again. And they would not listen. And we see how God feels about injustice and complacency right here. In chapter 1, where this all began... We read the prophecy. This prophecy, it came to Amos in the form of a vision. And as this vision unfolds throughout the the book of Amos, Amos saw things that God revealed to him. Amos saw visions of locusts, and then visions of fire, and then a plumb line, and then a basket full of summer fruit. And now, as this prophecy gets towards the end, this last chapter here, what does Amos see? He sees the Lord himself. And the Lord is standing next to what? An altar. He sees the Lord standing next to the altar and in typical scholarly fashion, the scholars start debating right there. Well, what altar is it? Is it the altar there in Jerusalem? Is it the altar there in Israel? Is it the altar in Jerusalem? And there's all these debates and all these books, you know? And for me anyway, my take on all that is I think it's more powerful that it doesn't describe where that altar is because then we can envision in our places of worship the Lord standing before us and what would he say to us What would he say here in our presence? Amos sees the Lord at the epicenter of their place of worship in a building that is dedicated to the expressed purpose of honoring him. God declares in that setting that this whole thing is going to come crashing down. All this religion is going to come crashing down down because that's not true worship and when it does come crashing down there's going to be nowhere to flee and when i say nowhere i mean nowhere because the text gives us nowhere learned a new word as i did my research this week how many of you know what a merism is i didn't know either before this week merism it has a couple definitions. In the world of rhetoric, a merism is a term used to describe two things that communicate in entirety, as in from A to Z. That's right, little man, the Z. All right, from A to Z. All right, as God describes the judgment that's about to come, he employs several merisms. In verse 1 that we just read, it's the capitals of the temple, which are the tops of the columns supporting the roof, to the... Thresholds which touch the ground. So there's one merism. Now the merisms continue. Look at this in verses two and three. Let's pick up where we left off. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand shall take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves at the top of Carmel, if from there I will search them out and take them, and if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, From there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. From Sheol, which is the underworld, to the heavens, and from Carmel, which is the highest mountain in their nation, to the bottom of the sea, there is nowhere to hide. There is nowhere to escape. If you are engaging in acts of injustice, or if you are complacent towards the injustice around you, and that doesn't change. Does God care about justice? God cares about justice. And, and, is God inviting us to choose a better and life-giving way? Yes. Yes. This prophecy has hope. Has hope. And it comes right here in chapter 9. After spelling out for this nine and a half chapters, eight and a half chapters, there's this hope to all who will receive it right here. Let's jump to that hope. Let's jump to verse 11. And when these verses speak of restoration, it is not going to come as a surprise to many of you that Christ is at the center of it, even though this was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth. Let's look at verse 11. In that day, I will raise up, from, I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. How do you see the Christmas connection here? Christmas connection here. And if you think I'm stretching things in about what I'm about to say, I encourage you to, to write down Acts 15, verses 16 through 17 and look it up because Jesus' brother James quotes this. And as he quotes this, he's referring to the events that came when Jesus came and in the days that followed that. This is a prophecy about a day when God promised that he was going to raise up a descendant of King David who would usher in a new era and draw people in. In the Bible, a booth, he says a booth of David, In the Bible, a booth is a a shelter that is usually constructed in the wilderness with whatever you can find. You grab the shrubs, you grab the sticks, whatever you can find, and you make this little booth. By referring to David's descendants as a booth that is about to be restored, there is a vivid contrast between this mighty temple that is about to be destroyed. God is about to do something that he had promised to do all along. And let's backtrack so you can see this. Uh, In Amos chapter 8, verses 11 through 12, it says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the what? Words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea, from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek The word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Did this prophecy come true? Yes. This prophecy comes near the end of the Old Testament. From the end of the Old Testament to the start of the New, there's about 400 years of silence. And then what happened with the word? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And a new day dawned. In the fullness of time, the word did become flesh, as promised, and dwelt among us. And this descendant of King David, this lion from the tribe of Judah, was called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And that brings us to this next talk point in your notes. I want to encourage you to write this down. This is so important. If I got anything, as I was preparing for this week, I think this is it. Feeling small feels very different when you can see A bigger picture. Feeling small feels very different when you can see a bigger picture. When you see the scope of injustice all around us, you can feel so small. When you look at the stats like we've looked at, 100,000 kids in our country being trafficked, what can one person do? What can one church do? You can feel so small. And I was feeling so small as I was heading down to Juarez this year. The home is facing bigger challenges than they've faced in a decade. And they face a lot of challenges. And so I'm going down there. I'm preparing myself to bring whatever hope and comfort I can, feeling so small because what can one person do? What can one church do to help? And when I got down there, I walked into a home that was filled with laughter and with peace. Laughter and peace. And everywhere I looked, I saw caring people who were coming around kids. People who God had raised up. Most of whom were raised up right from that hill itself. And then I saw how God was at work there. God was at work. He was he was inspiring organizations in the city to help build a new roof over the guys' dorms. To buy a whole new set of uniform for the kids. I went, they opened up a door, and here was this whole room stocked with food that was bought by by people in Kansas. And then I heard about an organization from Germany that had just written a grant and individuals from all over the country who were sending in sponsorship checks. And I felt small again, but now it was a different small. I realized I don't have to do it all. We don't have to do it all. We all do our part. God is doing something big. That is the case with this thing that we're into, this series on trafficking. As as Becca pointed me to these resources, I would like go on YouTube and I'd I'd look at some of these links. And what happens when you look at the links on the side, all kinds of other links start popping up and you begin to see organization after organization, after organization, people who are speaking out, people who are making a difference, people who are doing things. And you read one book and someone recommends another. And you see, you read that book and someone recommends another. They say, you got to meet this person. You got to meet this person. Are we alone in this? We begin to feel small in a good way. If we each do our part, we can make a difference. Take a look at this next quote. I love this quote. It is the greatest of mistakes to do nothing because you can only do little. Because a little can sure add up, especially when it's God who's moving these chess pieces around. Let's go back to our text. I want to pick up with verse 11 that I read earlier, and then we're going to take it through the end. This is how the book of Amos ends. Listen to this. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its branches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Who's doing this? It's the Lord who's doing this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. They shall never again be uprooted out of the land. I have given them, says the Lord, your God. A lot could be said about this passage right here. but With the time we got, let me summarize it like this. A day is coming. A day is coming when all will be restored to the point where we can't even keep up with the harvest. Where as they're bringing in the, the fruit of their labor, there's a whole other group already planting, not waiting for another season. That next season is now. We're experiencing the first fruits of that day. They were ushered in when Jesus came. Please write this down. Together, we are making a difference. We need to remember that going forward. Together, we are making a difference. Let me quickly point to six ways that this community right here is committed to making a difference. Number one, as a church, we are committed to pressing into issues that would be easier to avoid. We're committed to that. The two most common themes I've heard during this series are number one, I had no idea this was happening all around us. And number two, second most common thing I've heard is, thank you for talking about this. This is what we do. This is what we do. As a church, we're committed to pressing into corners of the Bible that would be a lot easier to ignore. And we're going to continue to bring challenging issues up to the forefront. Along those lines, 2019, we're going to press into immigration. Immigration. I was talking to my friends in Juarez about immigration. They use the word complicado. Complicado. It's muy complicado, isn't it? And we don't want to just jump in with some simplistic understanding. So we would love to have a task force that would go before us and start pressing into the scriptures and looking at the complexities and trying to put together a framework. What can we do? How do we approach something this complicado? So if you're interested in being a part of that, Becca, could you raise your hand? Talk to Becca. We would love to have a team going ahead of us. We are committed to this, pressing into hard and difficult passages and not not avoiding those discussions all right here's another thing we're committed to as a church we are committed to number two challenging one another to pursue a different kind of community we're committed to this we open this series with a chilling indictment that god made against church people here's what we read we started the series with this amos 5 23 through 24 take away from me the noise of Of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. If we ignore what God says about doing justice and loving mercy and walking humbly, all this is noise. No matter how good it looks, sounds, or appears, it's all noise. If we don't do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, As a church, we're committed to challenging one another. How are we living Sunday through Sunday? Not how do we look for an hour on Sunday. How are we living Sunday through Sunday? We want to be a community that honors the dignity of every person Sunday through Sunday. A community that chooses not to support practices or consume media, that minimizes a person's humanity or glamorizes exploitation. And along those lines, it was so convicting to press into this and to read of survivors' perspective on this when they look at our pop culture and to read as a survivor says, why are there churches with youth groups that are having contests to see who can pimp their Bible the most? Why are we using words like that in that kind of a way? And to hear one survivor talk about how she was watching the Academy Awards a couple years ago. And she was watching as, as the song that won the Oscar, the song that won the Oscar for best original song was called It's Hard Out There for a Pimp. So believe it or not, that was not on my playlist. And so I had to look up the lyrics. Could you all do that? Everyone look up those lyrics. And read those words. And then imagine. Here's what it, Imagine, imagine you are a survivor of trafficking. And you're watching people stand to their feet and applaud as that song about exploitation wins the award for best original song. We have to think differently. We have to think differently. Look what can happen when we move from insulated to introduced to engaged to advocates as a people. I came across a statistic in the book, Make It Zero. For every one adult who is trained, how many children are safer? Ten. Right now, it's about 700 people that call this church home. 7,000 kids could be safer if we become more aware, we become more active. Seven kids could be safer. And that's when you don't factor in the multiplication factor, right? Let's live and love differently. And, and if you've been tuning out, listen to this. And let's welcome people home when they realize the choices they've been making are wrong. If we can't call a porn addict who is trying to break free from his addiction a brother We really don't know what it means to call a former prostitute a sister. Can I get an amen to that? Had a great conversation with a guy in the hall between services. Another guy who's a father of daughters. And everything in us wants to. We have to learn another way. We are committed to challenging one another to live and love differently. And as a church, we're committed to this too. Number three, we're committed to engaging people in substantive ways and networking those who already are. As a church, we are committed to personally engaging in things that would be a lot easier to outsource. And we're committed to finding partners that we can work with. Wouldn't it be cool someday if when we have some seven-day space, it's not just us in there. Wouldn't it be cool if... Trafficking Justice North or a Make It Zero Twin Cities or a Quincy House Shoreview office was there with us. Wouldn't that be fun? I would love that. Or wouldn't it be great on a smaller scale to be able to offer something like we offered on Wednesday, last Wednesday? Offer that once a quarter. None of that can happen without number four, and that is giving generously. Another prophet named Malachi, he called people out for turning aside from what God says about tithes and offerings, we can't do any of this. We can't do any of this. If we don't pool our resources together as God instructs. All right, here's something. As we do pool our resources and we dive into this, this is so important to remember. Number five, as a church, we are expecting both the messy and the miraculous. All right, we're gonna spend a little extra time on this because this is so important. It's so easy a lot of times. We come into a topic like this and we say, that's it, All right. This is real. This is wrong. Let's go kick down the doors. Let's go hit the streets. Let's go. We can make a difference. Is it that simple? If you're going to press into this, be ready. It's almost always three steps forward, two steps back, sometimes three steps forward, five steps back. This is especially true when it comes to rescuing people from trafficking and helping them heal. How many of you know that kicking down doors on our own can make things a lot worse? Please repeat after me. Real ministry is really messy. That's true of all kinds of real ministry. Real ministry is really messy. And especially when it comes to trafficking, consider this, about 80% of those who've been trafficked, they've already been abused by someone they trusted. Already been abused by someone they trusted. So when you say, trust me, Many of them have been isolated from others, sometimes for years, and they've learned not to trust people or systems that most of us would turn to. And many have been threatened or their families threatened if they leave. And many are filled with guilt and shame for the things they've done and the things that have been done to them. And many have experienced what it's like to have no food and have no money and have no safe place to stay and to not know what happens if they try to leave the life. And when all seemed hopeless, for many, this is their story, they met a man who made promises who made them feel safe and loved. And they've been manipulated at the point of their greatest vulnerability to believe that their trafficker is their guardian, or their boyfriend, or father figure. There's a reason why so many pimps have their girls refer to them as daddy. Rachel Lloyd, who was in the life herself, she discovered this, and she said, girls weren't just drug addicted, the girls were what? Love addicted. And that, I'll learn, is far harder to treat. Why did she understand that so deeply? Because that was her story. Here's a poem that she wrote when she was 18. Sing me a pretty love song as I start to cry. Tell me you love me as you wipe the blood from my eye. Tell me why the only one who can wipe away my tears is the only one who's the source of all my fears psychologists will use terms like Stockholm syndrome, PTSD. One of the girls coming out of the life, she said, it's like a rope that keeps pulling you back. This is hard. This is messy. This is complicated. It is not as simple as kicking down a door or opening your home or going to the streets. Those who've been trafficked will rarely run to what we consider safety and stay there. And as we press forward in a church, it's so easy to get discouraged, to say, don't you want help? It's not that simple. Not that simple. We must remember that survivors are often tired and traumatized and hurting and lonely and depressed and scared. And if you choose to get involved, expect it to be about 10 parts messy for every one part miraculous. As I said that, Amanda, who's been joining us throughout the series and helping us out, she was nodding like a bottle head on that. It's about 10 parts messy for every one part miraculous. This quote by Russell Barkley says it all. Um, Parents, you can especially relate to this. Kids who need love the most, in fact, teachers, you, you can recognize this too, right? Kids who often need love the most will ask for it in the most unloving of ways. It's hard, it's messy. But is it worth it? Yes, it's worth it. It's worth it. As I was going back over my notes this morning, I I realized that I had made a typo. And earlier, where I just read that um, they're scared, I had misspelled that word. And I misspelled it as sacred. They're sacred. That's not a misspelling, is it? It's worth it because they're sacred. Every life is sacred. And you know why I have hope? It's because this is sacred work. And God is with us in this. And when we come together in his mighty name and we find partners who have figured a few things out and we tether our idealistic zeal to reality-based frameworks and then we saturate that whole thing with a lot of prayer, miraculous things do happen. Can I get an amen to that? And we find that we're not alone and that we're not as small as we thought we were because we're a part of a bigger picture. And that brings us to number six. As a church, we're inviting others to join us. When James quoted Amos, as I mentioned earlier, the gist of what Amos was getting at by quoting Amos is he said, we were all along supposed to be this light. We were all along supposed to be this, and people were going to see that light, and they were going to be drawn to it. And just last week, I saw that happening right here, right in that lobby. As everyone was out there, and people were at the table, and they were engaging. How can I get involved? How can I learn more? And people were having real fellowship, and in here, there was real, sincere, passionate worship. And we were doing all these things. As all that was happening, this woman came walking through, right between services, when the lobby was just buzzing. And she's got her little toddler in her arms. And she's walking because she wants to go down to take her little toddler to Playland, which will take her right down our kids' wing. Right? And she looks at all this and she goes, What is all this? I love that she said, What's all this? Because shouldn't church be all this? Church should not just be a worship service, as important as it is to gather together. It should be more. Church is all this. It's discovering that deeper walk with God. It's connecting with his people. It's giving as he instructed. It's serving one another as Jesus modeled and taught. It's reaching out to a world that is lost and hurting in Jesus' name. It's leaving a legacy of different lives that we're passing on to the next generation. It's all this. And isn't it fun to say to someone when they ask, what is all this? to be able to say all this this is church all this that brings us then to our last blank of our series here and it's open-ended i want to encourage you to write this down what else what else do we add to our all this in this area what else would the lord have us do and if that is a question that is burning within you we would invite you to be part of the discussion because we don't have those answers figured out yet. What our what else is. I feel great about the direction we're going, but what else? If you'd like to be a part of that, on December 5th, we're going to be meeting right in that room right there. It used to be called the Island Lake Room. I think it's now called Meeting Room 4. We're going to meet there on a Wednesday night. I think it's inside your bulletins. There's some information about that. RSVP to Becca, and we'd love to have you help us figure out what else in this area And one of the reasons I'm so excited to ask those questions is because what we're doing even right now is making a difference. We are making a difference. Let me close with this true story, something that just happened recently to me when I was down there in Juarez. So I was down in Juarez, and I was in a a conference call with other board members about all of this children's home stuff. And as we came out of the meeting, and I'm walking down those red stairs that many of you have walked down there, walking down the red stairs, and this young woman is coming up, and, and we pass And we kind of did that double take, like, I think I know you. And she goes, Chris? And look up, I go, Frida? And it was Frida. Okay, so this woman, young woman in the middle, I knew her when she was a kid. She was one of the kids that we sponsored there at the home, but she's not a kid anymore. Nor is her sister, Hanya. We sponsored those two little girls when they were little. Now, Hanya is working for the home. She's applying, in the process of applying to the university. to get into their computer engineering program. Her sister, Hanya, is already there at the university. She's studying social work. She is crushing her studies so well that she just got invited to go study in Berlin. Here's why I'm bringing them up. If you were to go down the checklist of at-risk for human trafficking, you'd check pretty much every box for Hanya and Frida. Almost every box. But what happened? Some people came around, those two kids and their hardworking dad, Donovan. A whole bunch of people. And they gave them a chance and they seized that moment and now they have a hope and a future. Which I'm hoping is also true for those little boys. Pray for Jesus and Alexis because they need a lot of prayers, those little guys. Here's my point in bringing this up. Besides the general fact we can make a difference. How amazing is it going to be when the day comes when that is happening with all of us? When we're all walking around and we have that moment, oh, wait, are you, are you, and we connect some dots. Because God took these small parts, wove them into a bigger tapestry, and did beautiful things in people's lives. Isn't that going to be fun? So let's pray to that end as we bring this series to a close. And I want to invite the worship band to come up and, and close us with this song. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this song, and thank you for inspiring, and I will use that word, inspiring, Christy, last week to, to sing it. Because you know my heart, you know all things. And you know how Coach Chris would have loved just Let's get that big song that just gets us all fired up to go out and kick down doors. Thank you for inspiring this song that we can see ourselves in as these kids who've been adopted by you. May everything we do come from that place where we recognize our own messiness in our own lives. And we recognize the many ways that we've fallen short, the ways that we've been complacent, the ways that we have done injustice. Or settled for it. And then, Lord, may you, during this song, may you help us to see, Father, help us to see those who also need to hear this song, those who right now are being abused or are coming out of the life. May, may you help us picture them hearing these words and singing these words that we may be inspired coming out of here like never before to do justice, to love mercy to walk humbly, and to invite people into a relationship with you, Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.